Well, it's so good to be here. Um, I bring greetings to you from Dale Edwards with the American Baptist Churches in New Hampshire, Vermont, and also from uh, Mary Day Miller, who I work with very closely with placement of new pastors in the American Baptist Churches of Massachusetts. So I bring greetings from both of those organizations. Also from Gordon-Conwell, because I'm an adjunct professor at Gordon-Conwell um, in practical theology. And I'm still the pastor of the Bridge Community Church in Milford, New Hampshire. We are not open yet. Uh, New Hampshire has some uh, very interesting rules and regulations, which makes it hard for us to open. As a matter of fact, I was a little worried when Rick invited me to come and speak that New Hampshire would even allow me to come here. Uh, because there for a while they weren't allowing us to cross state borders. I don't know how they were going to check on that, but anyways, that's the rule. Anyways, so it's good to be here, and I thank Rick for inviting me. Uh, would you pray with me, please? Our Father in God, we just come before you now, and uh, first of all, we love you. And in the midst of this pandemic, we can trust in you. Uh, we ask, Father, that you would just bless this time in your word. And Father, I just thank you again for the opportunity of being here with these wonderful people here at First Baptist Church of Haverhill. Pray this in your name. Amen. When I was a little younger, a few years ago, you know, one of the things about masks that I like is that it hides your wrinkles. Did you notice that? Now, the negative thing about masks is that I can't tell whether you're smiling or frowning. Um, so that's the bad. And did you ever imagine going to a bank with your mask on? You ever think about that? It's really a strange world we live in, right? Anyways, well, a few years ago when I was younger, um, I hated the first day of school. And not because it was the end of the summer necessarily or the beginning of what my mom would make spam sandwiches for lunch every day. And it's not because I hated school or I resented the fact of even going to school. I hated the first day of school because of my last name. Every, ever know anyone with a name that got massacred the first day of school? That was my name. I hated it. Some of the teachers pronounced my name in a ways that drove me crazy. I went to high school in Miami, Florida and played football, and my football coach would call me Bout Lady. Where in the world did he get that pronouncement from? Anyways, my name was always massacred. And your elder did a really good job this morning. I'm pr thankful for that, but I heard Josh kind of whisper it in his ear. Um, anyways, in fact, nothing has really changed uh, even today when I go into restaurants and doctor's offices and the Department of Motor Vehicles. God bless my soul. My name is murdered. You get the picture? A good thing, I know who I am. And I believe that many people really don't know who they are when it comes to spiritual things. I don't want to be simplistic this morning, but let me suggest to you this, that we do what we do because we think like we think. What do you do when you stand in front of the mirror on Sunday morning before church? What do you see? What do you think? Or how are you feeling? Any chance you might be wondering, well, I'm going to go to church. What are they going to think when they see me? Or will they even like what they see when they see me? Now, don't get me wrong. I think that we all want to look good. Even this morning, I asked my wife what shirt I'm to wear to make me look at least 10 pounds thinner. I mean, there is a little piece of healthy vanity, isn't there? That might be an oxymoron, by the way. I'm not sure. And all of us 
It makes us want to look our very best, to be noticed, and maybe even considered attractive. Not only do we care how we dress, but we tend to wrestle with the insecurities of our appearances. Sometimes we feel unwanted and even unloved. And let me also suggest that we also have some stinking thinking about our relationship with God. So today, what I want to do is look at something I would call the power of our identity, because I believe that if we understood at our core what God has done for us, what God, how God views us, what God is doing in us, if we comprehend the truth of our core being in Christ, then it would be easier for us, I think, to do some of the behavioral shifts that we desire to do at a more satisfactory level. Our problem, I think, is that we often go to the behavior rather than the core of our identity. Often we do what we do because we think what we think. I believe as Christ followers that we all have to really understand who we are in Christ. So I want to start off with a verse that wasn't read earlier, and that's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, one of my favorite verses, where in, in my translation it says, For we are God's handiwork, or masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Now, Paul tells us that as Christ followers, we are God's masterpiece. We're not the masterpiece of some artist, but we are the masterpiece of God. Some renditions say that we are the perfect workmanship of God in Christ Jesus. In fact, the Greek word there can also be translated handiwork or masterpiece, and it can be translated as a beautiful poem. And I really love that translation where it says we are the poetic statement of the glory of God. That our life is a poetic statement of the glory of God. And the Greek word not only can mean workmanship, but it also can mean tapestry. And if you look at a tapestry in the back, you see all of these cords and all of these colors of yarn or material put together, and you turn it to the front, and it's this beautiful picture. In other words, all the different things come together to create this beautiful picture of who we are We are, with Christ, a poetic statement, a masterpiece, the tapestry of God, the perfect workmanship of God. Now, I like the saying, if Josh can get over there, um, it was on a bumper sticker before, and it was on a poster, and I love it, and it says this, God don't make no junk. You ever seen that poster? I love it. God don't make no junk. The truth is, when we're in Christ, we're not a mistake. When we're in Christ, God created us to be a masterpiece. He didn't make us as junk. We are the masterpiece of God, created for the master's purpose. And God really wants us to believe this at the very core of our being as to who we are. And we'll know what to do if we understand who we are. Look what David says in Psalm 139. It says, for you created my innermost being You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know them full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in a secret place when I was woven together. See the inventory here of the tapestry? When I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Listen to Paul's words. We are the masterpiece of God. Listen to David's word about we're the tapestry of God. But the problem 
is that many of us who are Christ's followers really don't believe that at the core of our being. We don't understand our identity in Christ. So what I want to do this morning is elaborate the fact that we are the masterpiece, that we are the workmanship of Christ, as reflected in Ephesians chapter 1, that your elder read for me this morning and read for you this morning. First of all, we need to understand that Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians was written to people who lived in the city of Ephesus, which is now western Turkey, by the way. And if you were to stroll through the town of Ephesus back in the first century, there were two things you would notice. One would be the Temple of Artemis, or also known as the Temple of Diana, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And the other thing you would notice is the three archways as you entered into the marketplace in the city of Ephesus, which is also called the Agora. Now, the structure, the triple archway into the marketplace brings you into a place where You don't just buy a few things. There's all sorts of things you can buy. Ephesus was not one of those cities that you go in where there's a few donkeys and a few houses and lots of dirt. In fact, Ephesus was like Hong Kong or Tokyo or New York City. It It was believed to be the largest, the fourth largest city in the ancient world. But yet, despite the grandeur of Ephesus, it wasn't all great. So Paul arrives to the city in Ephesus and begins talking about Jesus, begins talking about the grace of God and how God's love was displayed for all of us through his son, Jesus. The Jesus movement started in the city of Ephesus and formed around the city of Ephesus. But Paul was only there for for two years, and he left. When he left Ephesus, he left people with a new faith, a new heart, but they were still struggling with their old habits. And history tells us that after Paul left, the people started drifting back to their pagan ways of rage, malicious gossip, and so on. So a handful of years after Paul left Ephesus, he decided they needed a refresher course. And this is the letter of the book of, of the letter to the Ephesian church. He has a refresher course, which was meant for the people of God. And basically, Paul spends three chapters of six chapters, three chapters, basically saying, remember who you are, remember who you are, remember who you are. Remember how God loves you. Remember how he dumped his mercy on you. Remember how he stepped into your life and gave you CPR when you are spiritually dead. He really doesn't tell them what to do about anything, but spends three chapters talking about remembering who they are. Remember who you are, because often we behave the way we behave because we think the way we think. So the issue of identity, I think, is really important for all of us, and we're going to explore three key terms in the first chapter of the book of Ephesians. And we're going to see how Paul uses these terms, these beautiful illustrations for the people living and around Ephesus. He uses real rich imagery that connected very deeply with the people of Ephesus. And they are adoption, redemption, and sealing. And hopefully this morning, that you'll have a better understanding of your identity, and it will help you to have a healthier life with God as you dig deeper with him. So the first image that Paul uses is that of adoption. And as he calls the Ephesian church, he tells them to remember their faith, their identity. He says this, in love... You predestined us to be adopted as the sons, and I'm going to add as the daughters, 
through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and goodwill. Now, what I like about that particular phrase, and we'll get to the adoption part in a minute, but he does this in accordance to his pleasure and goodwill. In other words, it made God very, very, very happy to adopt us as his children. He wanted to do that. So what is your core identity? Is your core identity, does it start with the biblical truth that God adopted you when you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? We all understand, or we should understand, and I'm sure Rick has preached about it, that we can't earn God's love. It's impossible to earn it. And that's why Paul says this, in love he predestined us to be adopted. Somehow what Christ did for us here on this earth is the key of this adoption process. And we can't earn this identity. Our tendency is to read passages of Scripture from the 21st century eyes that we have. But let me suggest to you that we miss the richness of the text if we don't look at it from first century eyes. So in order to do that, I'm going to take you down a couple of trips this morning. And I'm going to try to do that within the 30 minutes that I'm allowed. In order to do that, let's imagine for a moment that you, it's a Saturday night, and you decided you were going to go to the theater. And so there's a picture of the remains of the theater of Miletus, about 20 miles south of Ephesus, and the theater seats about 15,000, probably with social distancing, probably 6,000. We're walking in, and there's a play, of course, on the stage going on. It's the play, the Greek play, Oedipus Rex. Now, now we need to understand that the viewers of Ephesus understood the backstory of Oedipus Rex, and that is that King Laius and Queen Jocasta of Thebes were warned by an oracle that they were going to have a son, and that son was going to cause trouble in their family. And so what the king did is when his son was born, he, put, he pinned the, the feet of the child together, and he abandoned the baby. Now, a shepherd finds this baby boy and names him Oedipus because that means swollen feet. And Oedipus is raised by the king of Corinth. Now, the part about King Laius abandoning his son doesn't shock the viewers like it shocks us. And the reason why it doesn't shock the viewers is because abandoning a child was very common in Roman culture. In Roman culture, when a baby was born, it was set at the father's feet. And the father at that moment would pick up the baby if he wanted to claim the baby, or he would walk away from the baby. Maybe it was a girl and he wanted a boy. Maybe it was a boy and he wanted a girl. Or maybe there was a birthmark or some defect that, did, that displeased him, and so he would walk away from the baby. Rarely in Roman culture is a baby killed. Instead, the child is exposed to the elements of the gods to decide its fate. And frequently, a child will be taken to the Agora, to the marketplace, and abandoned there. <clears throat> and sometimes someone would come along and would take the child and raise it as his own to be a slave. So it was to this culture that Paul is writing about adoption. Paul writes to the church of Ephesus, and he's writing to a culture where babies are routinely abandoned. I read um, that outside the eastern gate of Ephesus, at the edge of the theater that we, we looked at, or we're looking at now, uh, there was a garbage dump. And many times you would find a baby that was left there in the garbage dump. There's a book that was out by a physician from Pergamum who he wrote about how, how it's important for you to measure the baby a certain way if you're going to pick it up, uh, because the odds are if you follow those dimensions, you're picking up a strong baby who will be a good slave. 
So given that culture, slave children were actually considered themselves to be lucky. So Paul writes to these people and he says this, if you've come to know Jesus Christ as your personal savior, your defining moment is not who threw you out, but your defining moment is who picked you up, who picked you out, and who took you home. You know, there were so many behavioral issues that Paul could have addressed in the first three chapters of Roman, of Ephesians because they were slipping away in, in, in their pagan behavior, but he wanted them to understand. Before I tell you how to live your Christian life, I want to remind you who you are. Your most defining moment is not who threw you out, but your defining moment who's picked, who is who picked you up who picked you out, and who took you home. And if you heard the whisper of God and responded to the, mo- to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, you need to know that something miraculous happened at that very moment. God picked you up. God picked you out, and he took you home. He adopted you. And Paul says this in Titus 3.7, being justified by grace. We might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Not only did God pick you up, not only did God pick you out, not only did God bring you home, but when we were adopted by God, we became heirs of a very rich inheritance. We have to really let that adoption sink in. Being adopted by God is something that we have now. The minute we accepted Jesus Christ into our life as our personal Savior, everything that Christ accomplished at Calvary was ours, was transferred to us. We have become that beautiful, spiritual, rich tapestry in Christ. Hard means that we are loved by God like Christ is loved by God. We are honored like he is honored. And every one of us, no matter what, no matter our circumstances, our circumstances cannot hinder or threaten the promises of God. In fact, our bad circumstances will only help us to understand and even claim the beauty of God's promise. We are the adopted children of God. He picked you up. He picked you out. Even knowing how rotten you would be. And he adopted you to be his child. That's the first imagery. The second imagery is that of redemption. And I know when I use the word redemption, it sounds like a theological word, but really it's only a trade word. And so Paul says in in verse 7, he says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. What do we have redemption through? Through his blood. Through the blood of Jesus. Again, we can't look at this in 21st century eyes. We really have to go back to 1st century and understand why Paul was saying what he was saying to the slave culture. Ephesus was one of the largest slave markets of the Roman world. In the marketplace in Ephesus, you could buy all sorts of spices from the east, purple cloth from Tiatra, the latest fashions from Rome. I'm not sure they had masks then. But you can also go in the marketplace and buy people. Matter of fact, those of you who are computer smart, when you go home, just to check out if I'm telling you the truth, Google the words Ephesus slave market. 
And you will find references that claim that between the years 1000 BC and 1000 AD, Ephesus was the center of slave trade in the Roman Empire. So Paul came and spent two and a half years of his life in the hub of slave trade. So again, let's take a trip. Let's wander in the courtyard for a moment, and there's a group of Jesus followers kind of talking to one another, including people who were actually bought out of slavery. And you notice a slave, and you ask him, who do you belong to? And he responds, well, I belong to Cornelius. Well, how did this happen? And he replies, well, as a baby, I was picked up out of the garbage dump. Some guy and his wife came along and picked me up. They measured me, took me home, and raised me to be a child, a slave. I worked for them as early as I can remember as a slave, doing household stuff. I stayed with them until I was 13 years old, and they took me to the marketplace, to the Agora, and they sold me to Cornelius. Can I ask you a personal question? What were you worth? He said, well, I was actually pretty good. I was strong, and I was worth 24 pieces of silver. Cornelius came with that bag of money and redeemed me. He bought me. Now, if this guy had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ, Paul wants him to know that his primary identity is not that he's a slave to Cornelius. There was someone else who paid for him. Someone else who bought him. Paul uses this term, in him we have redemption through his blood. And Paul's saying, listen, the redemptive program of God is not about money. The redemptive program of, of God is what Jesus accomplished on Calvary. Jesus paid the redemptive cost to bring our souls to God. Now let me try to maybe give you a great illustration about this. Let's say a friend invites you out to dinner and you go to a restaurant in New Hampshire, we're allowed 100% now, although I'm not sure I'm really going to do that with social distancing, but we'll see. But they invite you out to dinner, and they, want you, and they say, why don't you come along? Okay, absolutely. And so there's about 10 of you that go to the table, which would be against the law right now. Only six are allowed, but when I put this together, it was 10. And you sit down, and you flip open the menu, and you see the prices, and you realize, whoa, this is not a restaurant that I normally go to. And you spend the whole meal as you dive into your ribeye steak feeling uncomfortable, knowing that it was a budget breaker for you. At the end of the meal, you go to pay the bill reluctantly, and someone says, oh, don't worry about it. The guy at the end of the table, he picked up the tab. You feel relieved. You feel grateful. Someone picked up the bill for you. See, Christianity is not about doing stuff. Christianity is not about doing enough for God that he finally likes you. God bought us. He redeemed us through the blood that Jesus shed on Calvary. In him, we have redemption. And, Paul says, the forgiveness of sins. That clause and the forgiveness of sins is incredibly important because what that is saying to you and to me that the idea here is God no longer needs to punish you or me for the wrongs that I've done. That somebody else has already been punished for everything we've done wrong. And you know who that was? That was Jesus who shed his blood on the cross. And Paul is writing to this culture of slave people who were bought and sold. He said, look, Your identity is not about who bought you here on this planet. Your identity is about who bought you by his blood. It means that you are someone else's child. Someone paid for you. 
In Galatians, Paul says this, he says, God redeemed us, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming cursed for us, for it is written, curses everyone who hangs on the pole. All of us are under the curse of the law before Christ. But Jesus paid the price, redeemed us, even the curse of the law. We were slaves to the law. See, our primary identity is the fact that the Lord Jesus bought us by shedding his blood and we're his. You know, sometimes we do what we do because of the way we think. And all Paul is saying is remember who you are. Remember who you are. Remember the fact that God adopted you, that God picked you out. He picked you up and he brought you home and you made you his child. He bought you. He redeemed you from the curse of the law. His son shed his blood on Calvary just for you. And that means that you are forgiven, that you no longer have to pay for your sins, that Christ redeemed you from your sins. The third imagery is that of sealing. And Paul writes this, and you're also included in Christ. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed you were marked with him, the seal, the Holy Spirit. So Paul is telling the church and telling us, but really talking to the church, he says, do you remember when I came here and spoke to you about the promises of God? Do you remember when I came here and spoke to you about the mercy of God? Do you remember when I came here and talked to you about Jesus? He says, you heard the truth and you believed. You accepted the truth and you believed. When Paul was in Ephesus for two and a half years, he talked to them about Jesus, God's means of rescuing them. He said, remember when you believed the gospel? At that point, you were marked with a seal. And the seal is a mark of ownership, by the way. If you were to send a letter out at that time, you would put the seal on. You would uh, melt some wax and put your ring and smash it on the wax, and that would be the seal identifying who the letter is from. The seal was a mark of ownership. How many of you saw the movie The Gladiator? See if I got that picture up there. Anyways, Russell Crowe played a gladiator, and I have the tattoo on his arm. See the tattoo? It says SPQB, uh, QR, excuse me. Uh, I will probably lost my eye test for the... Anyways. Um, anyway, they marked him as a Roman soldier for the emperor. It was a mark of service. Soldiers were tattooed. Captives and slaves were branded. This is the kind of seal of a man in a courtyard has on his body. Paul is writing to this culture, a culture where people were literally branded to show who owned them, who purchased them, and who they belonged to. And Paul is saying, do you realize when you came to know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you received a seal of God on your life? It's a seal of promise. It's a seal of God whispering to you, you're mine. You're mine. I adopted you. I redeemed you. And I'm sealing you with the Holy Spirit. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12, 1.22, set his seal of ownership on us by putting his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. God is reminding us that we are his, that he redeems us by the spirit, that when we receive Jesus Christ as our personal savior, the spirit was the seal of God's ownership in our life. Three images that help solidify our true identity in Jesus. You know, perhaps you're in a relationship that you thought were heading the right way, and it's amazing it's going the other way. Or perhaps you feel lonely or broken today. Perhaps 
If you know Jesus, you need to hear his whisper again. You're mine. You're mine. I love the fall of New England. I don't like the fact that it cuts the summer down, but I love the fall. And you're driving down the road, especially in New England. It's absolutely beautiful when the leaves begin to change. And you're captivated by the oranges and the yellows and the reds. And I, many times something stirs in me, something transcendent. And I know who made those leaves. Not sure he made winter, but that's another issue. I know that when I drive down the road in the fall, I can hear God whispering to me, just as I created them, I recreated you. You're mine. God adopted us. He paid for us, and we're his. When we know this in our core, this ought to be our primary identity. It shouldn't be our home. It shouldn't be our job. It really shouldn't be our children. Sorry about that, Rick's parents. It shouldn't be about our looks. There is a freedom in understanding that our true identity is a child of God. And when we remember, when we remember, when we remember that God adopted us and paid for us and we are his, we're free. We're free to be a parent without having to have my children's affection to raise, to love, to adore, and to release. I wrote this one down, we're free to age with grace. I'm still working on that one. The years fly by. And I know that someday I'm going to be home with the one who picked me out, who picked me up, who adopted me. I know that one day I'm going to be home with the God who loved me so much that he sent his own son to die on the cross for me and redeem me. And I know I'm going to be home one day with the God who sealed me as his own by giving me his Holy Spirit. And it will free me to dig deeper in my Christian life. There's a transition in chapter four, which we're not going to go into because it would take another hour or two, and I'm sure you're dying under those masks. But Paul in Ephesians 4 one says this, as a prisoner of the Lord then, and this is the part I want you to see, as a prisoner of the Lord then, I urge you, based on everything that I said in the last three chapters, I urge you to live a life of the calling that you have received. See, Paul's ready to go after all that other stuff, to go after speech and theft and deception and rage and healthy relationships or bad relationships. But before he does that, because I want you to remember that you're loved. And so you can strive differently to live. I want you to remember that you're loved so that you can love differently. I want you to remember who you are so that you can give differently. And when I find myself, and I do, when I find myself in those moments when I am down on myself, I think, what am I doing here? I am a child of God. He picked me out. He picked me up. He made me his son. He redeemed me by his blood. And he sealed me with his Holy Spirit. When I remember who I am, and I settle this identity thing, which I have to do on a regular basis, when I recall it, I am free to give grace because I receive grace. I am free to love because I receive love. I am free to live differently because I know I have the Holy Spirit in me. Knowing our identity, as the sons and daughters of God, he picked us out 
He picked us up. He bought us. And he gave us the seal of the Holy Spirit. Listen, I don't know you, and I don't know any of you who are watching this morning, but I want you to know that if this doesn't make sense to you, Maybe you need to accept Jesus as your personal Savior. You know, there is a God up there who wants to love you unconditionally. There is a God up there who sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. And all you have to do is accept it by grace. You can't earn it. You can't be good enough. I'm a pastor. I still sin. I can say it to you. This church, I wouldn't say that to my, no, my church knows I can sin. We're all sinners. We all make mistakes. But God picked us out and wants to pick you up if you haven't accepted Jesus. He wants, he's picked you out. He wants to pick you up. He wants to take you home as a son and daughter. He wants to redeem you by the blood of Jesus Christ and seal you with his Holy Spirit. And what that simply means is that you accept him by faith. That's what it means. Nothing more, nothing less. Will you pray with me? Our Father and God, we thank you for the richness of your word. <laughs> I don't know, Lord, sometimes I just need to go back to the simplistic things of our faith. And I'm often reminded that when I'm in down in the dumps, that there's, that's not the place for me to be because you took me out of the dump. You picked me out. You picked me up. And you brought me home. And I thank you for that. I thank you for your Holy Spirit who is the seal of my inheritance until the day of my redemption. And Father, I thank you for your love that was expressed unconditionally in an, uh, an amazing way by sending the son that you loved to die on the cross. And I pray, Father, if there's anyone in the sound of my voice that has not accepted Jesus, that they would do that right now. And the moment they do, they are adopted, they are redeemed, and they are sealed. We pray this in your name. Amen.